0: Well, it's my honor to introduce a dear friend of mine, Doug Cobb. Doug is a five-talent guy. He's a missions sage. He's uh, an author, a teacher, a mentor to many, and a kingdom entrepreneur. And you are going to be blessed. So hold on. To your seats, you're in for a lot of great information about what God is doing around the world. So, it's an honor for me to introduce my friend Doug Cobb. Thank you, Charlie. Morning, everybody. Welcome to Southeast Christian Church. This church has been the home for me and my family since 1989. Some of you weren't even alive then. I know. Uh, We're so glad you're here. You know, I heard um, from Will, uh, or Charlie, I guess, the other day that um, something like 70% of the medical missions, missionaries that are being sent around the world have come through this conference at one time. We are so thrilled to be able to be a part of that and to be able to encourage you in that work. Isn't that great? Charlie told you, um, my name is Doug Cobb. I uh, have been an elder here at Southeast for close to 20 years. Um, My career was in business, but I now am privileged to lead a ministry called the Finishing Fund. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But the Finishing Fund is about accelerating the completion of the Great uh, Commission. I'm married to Gina, who is here somewhere. I'm not sure where she is. Uh, She is a Bible study fellowship teaching leader. How many of you know the ministry of BSF? Any BSFers? That means I'm married to a colonel in the special forces. So um, so let's get to it. Um, if you look at uh, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. Now that passage was first given as a warning. God was going to raise up the Babylonians. They were going to come and bring judgment on Judah they had been told that would happen, but they didn 't believe that it would uh, but I think those verses verse applies just as powerfully to our world today. God is at work around the world, among the nations, doing amazing incredible things through His people. I think we are living in the most significant and important days since Jesus walked the earth. Uh, I believe we 're living in the in the in the days in which the Great Commission task will actually be completed. And I want to tell you, I want to do four things this morning. I want to take a deep dive look at what the Great Commission is. Barna says that something like one in seven people in pews know what the Great Commission is about. I assume this audience would be much better about that. But I want to take you and show you a few things that maybe you haven't seen about this Great Commission uh, task in the scriptures. What it is... Uh, where we stand in the completion of it, uh, why it matters, and what we should do. What it is, where we stand, why it matters, and what we should do. Um, let me tell you a story to begin. The fellow in the center there, uh, I'm going to call him Abdul. This is being broadcast. I can't use his real name or the real name of the people group. Um, but I'm going to say that he's a, a member of a people group called the Grige People who live very high in the mountains in a small Central Asian country. For more than a thousand years, every Griege person has been a Sunni Muslim. As far as we know, there's never been a Christian among the Griege people. In fact, until a few years ago, as far as we know, nobody had ever even been to tell them about Jesus. But in 2017, a missionary organization out of the United States began to work in a people group in the capital city of that country, and as they began to disciple them and gather them into, uh, into the kingdom, they shared the vision with them of this people group and five others that were similarly unengaged up in the mountains of their country and challenged them that they could be the ones to go and tell them for the first time about Jesus. So they began to pray. And when the spring of 2018 came, when the mountain passes opened, they were able to drive up over these very treacherous roads. Uh, the leader of the team told me that he was told that 20 people had died on that road. He meant, like, since it was built, no, this year. So it's really more of a trail than a road. As they begin to approach this village uh, of the Grish people, they see Abdul walking by the side of the road. He's got a cow and a calf. The calf is good news. He's now twice as wealthy as he was. And they decide they've come to tell people about Jesus. They stop. They begin to engage him in conversation and they begin to tell him about uh Isam Asi, the, the Jesus of the Bible. And as they are speaking to him, he begins to weep uh, really uncontrollably. And they ask him, brother, what's wrong? What's going on? And he says, I've been carrying this burden of guilt and shame, and no one has been able to tell me what to do with that. Well, they tell him about our Savior Jesus Christ, who takes away our guilt and shame, who took it to the cross with him and took it to the grave and left it there. And right there, by the side of the road, Abdul prays to receive Jesus and becomes the first Greek believer in the history of the world. Now, he says, you've got to come tell my family about this. And so, well, we'd be happy to do that. So he, he takes them into the village. They go to his house. His wife becomes a believer. His children become believers. He says, you can use my house as your base of operations here. His house is now the first church among the Griege people, there are now scores of followers of Jesus in that place, and that church in that village has reached out to the other four Griege villages to give them the good news of Jesus as well. Now that's, that's one story of one, yes, that's, that's worth clapping for. That's, that's one story of one man and one people group But I want you to see that it is illustrative of what God is doing around the world. Hundreds, thousands of people groups in the world where no one has ever been to tell them about Jesus have been coming into God's kingdom over the last few years. And we are now down to just a handful of groups, a very small number, where we, as far as we know, still have work to do that there's been no presence of Jesus in those in those places. Now... The Great Commission, you, you know it, Matthew twenty eight nineteen, go and make disciples uh, of all nations, and there's more to this, but I just want to stop and do this just, just this one little bit and break this down. I, I think there's three really important words in this uh in this one little phrase. The first word is go. And that is the most important word in the Great Commission. And I am so excited that you guys are contemplating or have already decided to go. When we go, God does amazing things. Until we go, he's not going to do those things. Training is important. Preparation is important. Finances are important. All of those things matter. But I think if, if I had to pick, I would say go unprepared, untrained, unfinanced, and just go. Because when you go, God's Spirit can do amazing things. second key thing in this phrase is Disciples. God doesn't want just believers. He doesn't want people. It doesn't end at baptism, although that's a big step in most parts of the world. He wants disciples, people who are committed followers. Our job is to make disciples, to plant churches and make disciples in the places where we where we go. And then the third thing here is this phrase, all nations. Now, when we hear that word nations, we think about a country, France or China or Germany, the United States, Uh, Those are nations. But in the Bible that word has a different meaning. The Greek word here is the word ethne. Uh, You can guess what that means. We have English words that are based on that word, ethnicity, ethnic. Um, It describes a a group of people who share a set of common characteristics, often language, geography, ancestry, history, culture, um, a people group. A people group. And the Smart people, the PhDs who have given their lives to study this stuff, tell us that there are more than 10,000 of these. The group I work with, uh, the International Mission Board, their database has a few more than 12,000 of these ethnos scattered all around uh, the world. Uh, And they are scattered all around the world. Some countries have only a few ethnos. They're fairly homogeneous Other countries have hundreds and hundreds. The country of Nigeria, where I've been many times, has 450 or so of these. Uh, India has even more. There are many of these little groups scattered all around uh, the world. Now, uh, we know from the scriptures where these groups came from. It's described in Genesis chapter 11. And this is a little bit of a tricky passage of scripture, um, But I think it's instructive to understand that it was God who is responsible for this division of the world into these 12,000 people groups. If you started at the beginning of this chapter, you'd see that it clearly says that up till this time, all the people in the world were united with one common language. But because of the disobedience that took place here uh, at Babel, God... uh, scattered the people. He confused their language so that they couldn't understand each other and then scattered them around the world into their own geographies and places. And so it's God who is responsible for this kind of chaotic mess we see in the world of everybody being separated from everybody by uh, by ethnos. Let me tell you another story about one of these um, ethnos that are scattered around the world. Uh, this is about the Yardima people who live very high up in the world's highest mountains. The, it's a small people group, only a few thousand people, but they are very proud of their temple, their Hindu temple, where I am told reliably that even today, if you are wealthy enough, you can arrange to purchase the daughter of a poor family and have her sacrificed in that temple. Hard to believe that's still happening in this day and age, but I believe that it is. The woman on the on my left there, with the beautiful smile, I'm going to call her Esther. She lives in that same country. Uh, she's a believer. She was told about the Yardima people and decided that that was what God was calling her to was to go tell them about Jesus. So she and her husband got on a bus, rode two days uh, on a bus, and then walked for a while to get to this Yardima village where she began to walk around this temple complex and pray. And after three days of doing this walking, the girl on my right, uh, I'll call her Ona, came out of the uh, temple complex and they were able to interact. It turns out that she is the daughter of temple musicians who live in and work in the the temple complex. As they begin to talk, Esther can sense that Ona is feeling deeply depressed and discouraged, maybe even suicidal, that her countenance is so dark, and she asks her what's wrong, and she explains what she, the burden she's carrying, and she begins to explain to her about Jesus Christ, the one who gives us hope in life. And as they talk, Ona prays and becomes the first daryima, Yardima believer in the history of the world. She explains to Esther that her brother is sick uh, and has not been able to be healed. They've offered sacrifices for him. They've done everything. She invites Esther in. They pray for her brother. Her brother is healed. Her brother, her mother, her father become believers. And based on that healing, a number of other people in that place have now followed Jesus, dozens of them. And guess where they meet for church every Sunday? On the grounds of that very temple that I was describing to you the light of the gospel has broken in to the yardema people so let's um, let's talk a little bit about this great commission task so when we see that verse uh well, sorry when we see that verse go and make disciples of all nations you know, we have a tendency to sort of see that in isolation i think sometimes we think well like jesus said well, i'm going to be away for a long time what can i give these guys to do while i'm gone right uh, that's a big job uh, you know I'll, I'll send them to the to the nations, but in fact this this command to go to the nations is something that we find all through god 's word. Uh, it begins over in genesis chapter twenty two The setting here is just after Abraham has demonstrated that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac uh, because God had commanded him to remember God stays his hand and doesn 't let him do it, provides the sacrifice instead and in Following that, those events, God makes a series of promises to Abraham, but one of them is this promise that through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now when you see that, your offspring, Abraham didn't know who that was, but we know who that is. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ, who was many, many, many generations later, Abraham's descendant. And notice it says that through him all nations will be blessed. So there it is in Genesis. If you flip over to, uh, to the book of Revelation, uh, it's there as well. This is John. He's given a vision. He's standing, watching, uh, and he sees around the throne of God men and women from every nation, people, tribe, and language on the planet gathered around that throne worshiping the Lord, worshiping the Lamb. Uh, I sometimes, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because uh, I think this is a little bit like seeing the scoreboard, the final scoreboard of a game that you haven't watched yet. If you're a football fan or a basketball fan, sometimes you, maybe you tape a game you want to watch, but somebody tells you the score. It's a little disappointing, but it sure helps when your team fumbles in the fourth quarter, uh, to know that they've already won the game. We know we win. This is the final scoreboard. Every nation gathered around the throne of God. But it's not just in Genesis and Revelation. The command shows up everywhere in between. It's in the Psalms, one of my favorites, Psalm 86. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Again, all nations worshiping the Lord. It's in the uh, it's in the pro- uh, prophets all over the place. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to save Israel, he says. I will also make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's in... Daniel. Daniel sees a vision of one coming like the Son of Man. Notice he was given authority, glory, and power. All nations and the people of every language worshipped him. It's in Malachi. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. That's the whole world, by the way. Uh, It will be in every place there will be offerings brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. And it's even in the New Testament we see this promise. This is Acts chapter 10. Context here is that Peter has just gone to visit Cornelius, has seen the Spirit come on Cornelius and his household, these Gentiles, something he could never have imagined would happen, and has baptized them. He's now back in Jerusalem explaining himself. He's getting the stink eye from some people for doing that. And this is what he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, uh, but accepts from every nation the one who fears a him and does what is right. Now, as I went through those verses, were there any words that stood out to you? I mean, the word nations was in there. Um, what other word did you see repeated over and over again? All, every. All and every. Now, I've got a dear friend in my weekend group, my Sunday school class, who I always call on for these kinds of questions. You know, because the translation here can be difficult. You know, the Greek to the English, you know, but if you were to guess what all means, what would you think it means? Yeah, that's what it means. It means, it, it means all. It means every. And what I believe is, is that what God has told us, not just in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, but all through the Bible, is that his promise of salvation by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, is for all nations on the planet. That there will be no one left out ultimately in the kingdom of God. That men and women, some representatives from every people group on the planet will be there around that throne that John saw in Revelation chapter 7. Um, It is a universal and worldwide promise to complete this. And he gave that job to us. He could have easily done this better and faster if he'd just done it himself. Trust me, You know, I get to work on this all the time. There are so many days that I'm discouraged and afraid or just tired. I know you feel the same thing. You know, we are weak, poor tools for him to use. But he loves us so much that he has given us this job and is going to make sure that we see it completed before he returns. You know, we are amazingly close to seeing this accomplished. Uh, we live in the most amazing time since Jesus walked the earth. Uh, I want to show you one more thing about this Great Commission thing, um, and uh, this is one that you, know, you don 't hear talk too much, but you know a lot of the te- churches in the New Testament were kind of uh, you know, mixed ethnicity churches. there were Jewish background believers, and there were Greek background believers and if you 've studied this much, you know that neither of those groups got along with each other very well the The Jews thought the Greeks were filthy pagans, uh, the Greeks thought the Jews were religious weirdos. And you know, and here they are coming together every Sunday and worshiping Jesus together. And the Book of Ephesians is a lot about that division, and Paul explaining what God is trying to do by bringing these two groups together. It culminates there in Ephesians chapter two, where Paul explains that um, that through Christ, God has made the two one, has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and has made in himself one new man, one new person, out of the two, and through that one body is going to reconcile them to the cross, by which he put a death their hostility. Now, uh, what I think is true is that that was originally written to Greeks and Jews in that one church, but I think this idea applies to all of these ethnos. That what God is going to do is he's going to draw them all together into one body, the body of Christ, And in that one body, he is going to present them blameless to the Father. But I'm amazed by something that that Paul says here, um, and that God, I think, has promised to do. And that is that he's going to put to death the hostility that divides people groups from one another. Now, many of you live in the United States. We have our flavor of this here. Uh, It tends to be black-white here in our country. Not so much by people group, but by skin color. But if you've traveled in the world, you know that wherever you go, everybody doesn't like the other. Sometimes that's kind of cold and simmering. Sometimes it's hot and active. We read about these things when they break out, like in Rwanda a number of years ago, between the two big groups in that country. But there is, there is fear and enmity and division between these 12,000 people groups that God has created. And I think it's an amazing thing that he has promised us, that in the body of Christ he is going to destroy that hostility, that we will be literally united in one. Now, I think we're going to keep our characteristics. You know, I, I sometimes think about what the buffet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb is going to look like. Um, I love steak and potatoes. I really hope that's on the menu there. My brother Daniel down here uh, from Nigeria, he loves his pounded yam. I have not been able to get used to that brother, I'm sorry. But I think our Lord who loves us, when He greets us as His bride, is going to make sure that all of us get all the food that we, we want at that wedding feast, whatever is for us. So I think we'll keep our diversity, but there will no longer be any hostility. You know, we live in a culture that highly values diversity and inclusion. Well, I want you to see that God's kingdom is the most diverse and inclusive thing that ever will be, ever has been. There's nothing that can come even close to it. It will include people from every nation, and in that body there will be no more hostility between the people groups uh, at all. Now, it's worth thinking about why God has taken on this task. You know, he originally separated these people groups from one another, I think for our protection. Um, you know, part of the reason he did it is that we weren't obeying his command to scatter; they gathered instead of scattering. Uh, but I think part of it is is that he wanted to protect us. Imagine what the world would be like if there was only one leader for the whole world. If an evil person got that role, the world would be a very scary and dangerous place. But the way God has arranged it, with countries and with nations. When one nation rises up for evil, there are others that can subdue it for good. Think about um, what happened in the world during World War II. Um, imagine if Hitler was the root ruler of the whole world instead of just a few, one country, and ultimately a few countries. So part of this he did for our protection, but it was always his intention to draw us back together. He intends us to all be uh, gathered in this body of Christ and to be one in it, and so. He has set this amazing goal of 12,000 people groups included in his body. Only God could do that. No man could ever begin to do that. In fact, until a couple of decades ago, we didn't even know with certainty how many of these groups were or where they were. Even today, I think there's still some doubt about at the edges about that. So it's an amazing thing that he's going to do that. He's going to put an end to all of this hostility uh, around the world. It's an amazing God-sized task, and only he will be able to... Accomplish it. I love the fact that we serve a God who does things only He can do. He declares His glory in those in those things. Let me tell you another story. This is the uh, about the Topang people who live in a Southeast Asian country. This country is um, a river surrounded by hills and mountains. And every hill you go over, it seems like there is another people group and another another people group. Uh, the Topang are animists, which means they worship the spirits. Uh, and um, as far as we know, in you know 2,000 years, nobody has ever been to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. But a couple of years ago, two young missionaries, um, let's call them Toby and Barry, uh, made the journey to the Topang village. They rode their motorbike up there and then walked when the trail got too rough for for the ride. And they came into the village, and they met a village uh, leader, a woman. uh, We'll call her Jan. uh, And they began to engage her in conversation and began to probe on some things. And after they talked for a while, Jan explained to them, she says, "We, we worship the spirits and we feed them, but we're still poor and weak and addicted and broken. She says, I don't think the spirits can really save us. So... They begin to tell her about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus who gives us power to be able to stand firm against the evil things in the world. And as they explain this to her, she begins to pray, and she becomes the first Topang believer in the history of the the world. This is her family. Uh, They are all now believers. The church in this place meets in their home. The gospel has come for the first time to the Topang people. Now, we look at this command, go and make disciples of all nations, and it'd be useful, it'd be interesting, I think, to talk about where we stand in getting this done. My colleague, uh, friend, um, Rick Warren, has come up with this model that I love of the Great Commission. He describes it with three B's, three finish lines, that when we have crossed them, we will have high confidence that we have completed the Great Commission task. So the first one is believers in every people group. That's kind of what we've been talking about so far. Believers is a little bit of a weak word. It should say disciples, but Rick's a good Southern Baptist preacher. You've got to have three points, and they've got to alliterate, right? So three Bs. But believers in every people group. So this is the challenge of taking the gospel to every one of those 12,000 nations and telling them about Jesus. The second B is the Bible in every language. There aren't quite as many languages as there are people groups, only about 7,400 languages in the world, about 12,000 people groups. But the second finish line is to get the Bible translated so that every person in the world has access to the scriptures in the language they learned sitting on their mother's knee as a, a child, as a baby. And then the third B is a body, a church in every place, different Organizations talk about this goal different ways. Some people say, you know, a church in every neighborhood, suburb, village, high-rise. Some people say a church within walking distance of every person on the planet. Uh, Some people say, um, you know, a a church for every thousand people. But the idea is that the church would be uh, ubiquitous. It would be present everywhere around the world. And Rick makes the point, I agree with this, that when we've crossed these three finish lines, and we can say those three things are true that there are believers in every people group, the Bible in every language, a body of Christ in every place, that we will certainly be very close to the finish line. There may be more things to do, but those are pretty good markers. So how are we doing in each of these three things? Well, we've already talked about the fact that there are 12,000 of these people groups on the earth. When I first became engaged in this work that I get to do now through the Finishing Fund, it was through a ministry called Finishing the Task. They actually have pulled together a list of what they call the world's unengaged people groups, these groups that nobody's ever been to to tell them about Jesus. And when I first got – oh, we can divide – yeah, let's divide the world up here just to make sure we have our terms right. So think about the world in three strata. So there's the reached world – that's where we live, lots of Christians, lots of churches. There's the unreached world – that's where most of the people in the world live. Very few Christians and very few churches, less than 2% of the population being Christian, but some Christian presence in the unreached world. And then at the very bottom of the stack is what we call the unengaged. No believers, no churches, no light of gospel at all in those places. So when I first got involved in this work in 2005, as far as we knew, there were about 3,500 unengaged people groups in the world. Out of 12,000. So what's that? A little more than 25%, 30%, something like that. So one in three groups, 2,000 years after Jesus came, still had never heard the gospel. When we started the finishing fund in 2017, that number was down to 1,450. And you should see that as an amazing thing. And, you know, 2,000 years to get from 12,000 down to 3,500. But then only, what, 12 years to get from 3,500 down to 1,450. Today... Based on the list that we're using at the Finishing Fund, our knowledge of what's going on around the world, we believe that there are just 83 people groups left that nobody has ever been to to tell them about Jesus. That is an amazing thing. Now, there are some other groups that people are there working where there are no believers yet, so that number would be a couple of hundred if we included those. There's some deaf people groups in the world that aren't on that list that we need to get to. There's some exceptions to that. But we are amazingly close to seeing that Great Commission uh, finish line uh, crossed for the first time. Let me tell you about one of these people groups. This is a, a news story. Uh, this is I can actually use this people group's name because they're in the country of Ethiopia, which technically has uh, you know religious freedom. Uh, the Gorose people. They live kind of in south central, uh, uh, kind of west central uh, Ethiopia, kind of south from Addis and the West. They are animists like the Topang people. Uh, Nobody had ever been to tell them about Jesus in 2,000 years. But last year a missionary went there for the first time and as he's meeting people in the village he meets this family this little boy whose name is Getanet, And Getanet has been paralyzed for five years when he meets his family. They've gone to the doctors. The doctors have not been able to heal him. They've gone to the Orthodox priests, they have not been able to heal him. They've gone to the witch doctor, and the witch doctor has not been able to heal him. They're out of money. They've spent everything they have trying to get their son healed. And they ask this, this missionary team, would you pray for our son in the name of Jesus? And they offer to do that, and he, they pray for him, and he is healed. He is, his paralysis is healed. You see him standing there now fully healed. As a result of that healing... Guess what happens to mom and dad? Some of you all are parents. That's easy, right? They, they're going to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. But that healing sparked a, um, a movement of the gospel in that place. And now, just about 18 months later, there are more than a 1,000 Jesus followers among the Gorose people group. And I didn't bring the picture to show you. I, I probably should have. It's a pretty cool picture. But... Um, uh there was a day about 6 months ago where many of the Gorose came and brought all of their fetishes and their charms and burned them because they had decided they were now going to be Jesus followers instead of worshiping the spirits i've asked i'm told that nobody told them to do that that they just that was the spirit working in their lives to accomplish to accomplish that that purpose so I hope now that you see the you know the deep biblical roots of this great commission task. I hope you see how we're getting close on the first B, the believers B. But let's talk about these other two Bs as well. That's worth um, understanding. So how are we doing on Bible translation? Well, there are, like I said, about seventy-four hundred languages in the world. Uh, the Bible is already in uh, about seven hundred and twenty-four of those. Have the full Bible, and the truth of the matter is, is that most people in the world now have access to the Bible in a language that they understand. Now, it may not be their heart language, it may not be their primary language, but it's a language that they understand and can, you know, when they read it there or when they hear it spoken, they can understand it. So a good part of the world uh, has the Bible in a language they understand. There are another 1,600 or so that have the Bible only, only the New Testament, uh, which is better than nothing but only part of the task. There's another 1,200 that have some portions of the Bible. Some of you may have been involved in translation work. Often you start with a a particular book. Sometimes it's the book of Luke because that's the script for the Jesus film. Sometimes it's a storybook from the Old Testament. Uh, uh, The book of Ruth is a popular one. The book of Jonah is a popular one. But there are Bibles, uh, languages where there's um, uh, only portions. And then about another 1,000 where there's work underway but nothing finished yet. So we're getting there but, but there's still work to do. But if you do the math on all of that, thank you, I've done it for you, that leaves 2,800 languages that have no scripture in them at all. But, and that seems like a pretty daunting task. But this is um, the webpage of an organization called Every Tribe, Every Nation that um, is involved in coordinating and funding Bible translation around the world, a little bit like what we do for the first bee, they do for the second bee. And you see their goal there. By 2033, every tongue, tribe, and nation will have access to God's word and its life-changing hope. So, we may be only a year or two away from seeing that first B finish line crossed by God's grace. But the guys that do Bible translation, the great men and women that are working on this, think we're only about ten years away from seeing that task completed. How about the third B? The body of Christ in every place. I want to explain to you why this is important. I, I, I have a a, a, a series of maps that I want to show you. So this is the country of Nepal. These are the provinces of Nepal. And the amazing thing is, is that that map is green. Every province in Nepal has a church uh, in it. That would not have been true 25 years ago, probably, uh, certainly not 50 years ago. Let's pick one province, uh, Gandaski Pradesh, and go down and look at that. This is the map of that province with the districts marked out. Districts are a little bit like counties for us. Uh, and look, in Gondeski, there's a church in every province. That's amazing. That would be like in the United States, in every district. That would be like in Kentucky, all 120 counties have at least a church. If you go down into one of these uh, districts, you, you find that it's further subdivided. I cannot pronounce what they call these subdivisions, but they they, they exist. And if we look at one of those, even, every one of those has a church. But let's go down to the very bottom level. And look at the villages in this Mahdi district, Mahdi region. And what do you see? It it was green when you looked at it from the top. But if you were to assign a color to it based on this map, what color would you give it? It'd be red, wouldn't it? Because while there are a few places with churches and a few other places, the yellow would be places with believers but no churches, you see that the vast number of the villages in that place, in that er territory, are without a church. And the goal of this third B goal is to turn that map completely green. Uh, and how quickly can we get that done? Well, the, the people who work on this stuff have set 2033 as their goal to fulfill that church-in-every-place command. So, think about the times in which we live. We are living at the culmination of this Great Commission race. I, I like to think about the Great Commission as being a 2,000-year marathon. Maybe a relay would be a better way to think about it. And I think of generations that have come before us and have worked tirelessly on this task with no hope of ever seeing it completed. We stand on their shoulders. We run behind them in the race. But I think of the metaphor for our generation is that we are on the final Lap. Have you ever watched the Olympic marathon? Uh, you know that they start by some landmark in the city, you know the host city, and they run through the streets of the city. You see the little, you know, motorbike cameras as they're following the runners through there. But almost always, the Olympic marathon finishes in the Olympic stadium. The last 400 meters are run on the track of the, the stadium. And if I were to tell you where I think we are in this Great Commission race, I would tell you that I think we have come into the stadium. That we're running the final lap and that the finish line is just right there. It's in sight. Now, some of you, were you athletes? Some of you athletes when you were kids? When you get close to the finish line, do you slow down or do you speed up? You run as hard as you can because you want to win the race. And we have the privilege of being the anchor leg, the final lap of this great commission race. By God's grace, I believe that we are the generation that will see it completed for the for the first time. It, it's an amazing privilege that I hope we will have as a, a generation to see that uh, accomplished. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about why this matters, why this is important. One of, yeah, I, I should have had that up when I was saying that. There you go. Um, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Matthew 24, 14. Matthew chapter 24 is all about the return of Jesus. The beginning of that chapter, the disciples uh, admire the temple. You may remember this. And Jesus sort of, in the way he sometimes does, you know, kind of knocks them off their feet. He says, oh yeah, you see all that? There's going to be not a stone left on top of each other. They're appalled. They're shocked. They can't imagine how that would possibly be. Remember, they think Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom. How in the world would the Messiah let his temple be destroyed? And so they ask him a very direct question in chapter three of Matthew twenty-four: "What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age?" Uh, Here's the Doug paraphrase of that: "When are you coming back?" And he explains through that chapter a lot of things that um, uh, you know you are familiar with. You've heard these things: wars and rumors of war, you know, pestilence, apostasy in the church. You know, you've you've heard sermons about those. You've read that yourself. But in verse fourteen. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, the way I read this, that when Jesus was asked by his closest friends a direct question, when are you coming back? The answer he gave them was, I'll come back when you finish the task that I've given you to do. So, we should do the Great Commission Because Jesus told us to do it. It's enough that we do it out of obedience. That would be a sufficient motivation to complete the task. But could it be that not only could we be the generation that sees the completion of that task, but we could also be the generation that would see the return of Jesus? Would that be amazing? Wouldn't that be incredible? You know, every person who's ever lived in the world has been born and died Hoping for the promise of the return of Jesus. Only Jesus has escaped from death so far. But you know there will be a generation, the Bible promises, that we'll never have to taste death. That we will transition directly from life in this world into life in the kingdom of God. We will be renewed with new bodies and we will immediately be in the presence of Jesus. And it promises that he will never leave us after that. We will be with him forever and ever i 'm sixty five a few weeks ago, and I'm working really hard to see if we can't finish this task in time before my time to leave this world uh, comes. I am very hopeful I would be confident that this is within grasp by God's grace for all of us who are in this place to see this task completed and Jesus returning. Now if that's true. What kind of people should we be? This is the third point. You know, what what should we do? Actually, it's the fourth point. What should we do about this? Well, good news is the Bible gives us exactly an answer to this question. Second Peter chapter three is all about the return of Jesus. You know some familiar passages from that chapter. That's where Peter says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand. You know, but why is he delayed? He's delayed so that Everyone could come to the knowledge, as many people as possible can come to the knowledge of Christ. It's in this passage, that in this section of scripture, that we find that uh, prophecy that in the end times people will come scoffing and saying, where's the promise of his appearing? You know, he's never coming back. We hear a lot of that today. But as he moves through that passage in verses 11 and 12, he asks and answers a rhetorical question. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, since judgment is coming, since Jesus is coming back, What kind of people ought we to be? And he tells us there's four things that we should be focusing on. That we should live holy and godly lives, looking forward to and hastening the coming of that day. So let's go through each of those four things uh, one one by one. Holy. The original idea of holy is distinctive and set apart. God is holy because he is distinctive, he's transcendent, he's different, he's outside of the created realm. It encompasses more than that, but that sense of distinctiveness is a key part of holiness. And in a culture that is rapidly circling the drain, uh, where people, sadly to say, have lost their minds, I, I think, to be honest, have been given over in a Romans 1 kind of way. In a culture like that, we have the best chance that anybody's ever had to shine brightly as God's witnesses, to be distinctive and different. We don't want to be dragged down by our culture, but we want to maintain our faithfulness and commitment to the truth in the midst of a culture that is going the other direction. We want to be distinctive and set apart different. We want to be a light that shines so brightly that people, when they reach the end of their ropes, know that we're the people that they can come to to ask what can I do? The second thing he says is that we want to be uh, godly. And when I think about that, what does that mean? I think about the question that Philip asked Jesus. Do you remember this? Um, he said, "Jesus, he said, show us the Father." What was Jesus' answer to that? Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if we want to pursue godliness, We want to pursue Christ-likeness. One of my favorite promises in the Bible is that God is at work in each of us, conforming us to the image of his Son. When he's finished, we will all be little Jesuses. We will be like him. But if you want a list of things to work on on this, I can't think of a better one than the fruit of the Spirit. I think they describe Jesus' character, who he is perfectly, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that we want to be pursuing. Godliness is a product of the Spirit's work in our life, but it is also a product of our cooperation with Him. And so we want to be committed as we approach the return of Jesus to seeing that made true in our lives. The third thing he says is that you know uh, we want to be looking forward to that day. You know the Bible promises that there's a crown uh, for people who... Uh, have looked forward to the return of Jesus. Paul says it's going to be for him, but not only for him, he says, but for all who have longed for his appearing. I think this is a real challenge for us in the West. Um, you know, uh, I've lived most of my life in the freest, safest, richest place that has ever been in the history of the world. Nothing to compare to it. And I think it's very easy for people who have lived in the United States and the West in you know, our lifetimes to wonder how could heaven be better than what we already know? You know, could it be? Is it possible? And for that reason, I think we are less eager to see his coming than some might be. But I love this promise from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that, No eye has seen, no ears heard, nor has the mind of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You probably like to sometimes think about what's heaven going to be like, right? And you probably get some ideas in your head about that. I know I do. Well, whatever you think about, it's going to be better than that. Because the promise is, is that you can't even imagine how glorious it's going to be for those that, got, that are following Jesus. It's an amazing set of promises. Now, what about that last bit, though? Hasten, it's coming. Or speed, it's coming. What What in the world can we do to make that happen? Well, I believe that Jesus has told us in Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, that he will return when we have finished the task that he has given us to do. And so the one thing that I can see that we can all do to hasten the coming of that day is to speed the completion of the task. Now for some of us that means that we pray. For some of us it means that we give. For some of us, for many of you... I'm hopeful that will mean that you will go and that your part in making this happen will be to go and actually become a part of the frontline work in God's kingdom. I said at the beginning that the most important word in the Great Commission is the word go. And that is the encouragement that I want to give all of you as you are thinking about that or as you maybe have already made the decision, maybe some of you are already there. If you're already there, you've done the right thing. If you're thinking about it, do it. You will see God do amazing things through you, around you, if you are willing to go to the places where he is eager to see his kingdom completed. So, what's the Great Commission? We've got to tell every nation about Jesus. We've got to make disciples in every nation. How are we doing? We're getting really close, but there's hard work to do. Why does it matter? Because I think Jesus promised he'll come back when we finish. And what should we do? We should pursue holiness and godliness in our lives. We should be eager for his appearing. And we should do everything each of us can do to speed the coming of that day. Thank you so much for listening. It's been great to be with you. One thing I'll just add, I think at four this afternoon, um, I have a uh, breakout session and so if you have questions about this, i uh, be happy to answer those at that session. And um, uh, also, this is the book that Charlie mentioned, And In The End Will Come. Uh, I don't have enough here for everybody, I'm sorry. But, uh, but if you wanted it, uh, that will take you to the Amazon page. Uh, and you can get the Kindle really cheap or the, or the printed book if you're interested in that. And we can talk more about some of the other things in this book this afternoon when we're together. Thanks again. supposed to pray us out. Sorry about that. I got all wrapped up in stuff and I forget what I'm supposed to do. Can I pray for us? Father God, thank you that we live in the time in which we live. What a great privilege that is. Lord, we want to be people who are holy and godly. Would you work in us by your spirit to accomplish that? Father, we want to be eager to see your son. I I know I am. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we all would be. And Lord, we want to be hard at work in your kingdom, like that faithful servant you describe in the parable, working right up until the time his master appears. Father, use us, we pray, in this great commission marathon. Thank you for the privilege of being part of the last lap. Show us what you would have us do. Equip us by your spirit to do what you call us to. And Lord God, work with power in the world through your spirit to make these things true. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.